welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Patrick Kennedy-Williams, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. Patrick, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? Hello, Carter. I'm really good, thank you. I'm, as I'm sure you are as well, I'm buzzing from the first two episodes. Love the chat with Joe. Love the chat with Mitzi last time. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to speak to our guest today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm just so excited for today's episode. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Miles Allen. Miles is a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Oxford. And in the interest of full disclosure, he was a professor of mine many, many years ago when I did my master's degree. He is one of the coordinating lead authors on the IPCC's special report on the 1.5 degree target. And he is widely credited as one of the scientists to discover that net zero carbon dioxide emissions are required to stop global warming. So if you've ever heard the term 1.5 degrees, or net zero, this is the guy you want to speak to. So very, very excited to speak with him today about where these concepts came from, why the 1.5 degree target is important, what happens if we don't meet it, and most importantly, to explore the role of the 1.5 degree target in many people's climate anxiety. So with that said, Miles, such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Let's start with the same question that we try and start all of our episodes with. Could you tell us the story of how you first learned about climate change and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, well, it's a good question because it was a long time ago. Uh, I was working for a small NGO in Kenya uh, trying to save trees. Climate wasn't really on the agenda. It was the 1980s. It was a, a fantastic time to be in Kenya. I was very lucky to have that job. Uh, but I did a, a short internship with the United Nations Environment Program, and it was I was with the energy unit there, and uh, my boss pointed out there was this climate issue coming up. It was about the time that Jim Hansen was testifying to Congress, claiming that the uh, heat wave of 1988 was the harbinger of things to come. And uh, uh, my boss was Janos Pastor, who went on to become Ban Ki-moon's uh, main advisor on climate in the, in the build-up to the Paris Agreement. And he pointed out to me, if you're interested in this topic, go get a doctorate. I'd done physics, well, physics and philosophy, to be precise, as an undergrad. But at that time, it didn't really occur to me that uh, environments and climate was something you did with physics. Uh, remember, this was the 1980s. You know, physics was used for destroying the world, not fixing <laughs> it. Um, so, okay, I, I caricature a little bit. But, but a lot of the jobs which were open to physicists in the 1980s didn't really, uh, I didn't really fancy them. So uh, I, I, I went off to do other things and then it, it sort of realized that I could use my physics um, in, in studying the climate as well. And so I actually went back to my, uh, my old department. Again, this was pre-internet. So finding a PhD position wasn't just a matter of Googling what was available. So the only thing I did was, was I, I just went back to talk to the people uh, in, in my old department. In, in, in Oxford has an atmospheric physics uh, sub-department. Uh, so actually, it's quite a strong center uh, for physics of climate. Um, so I was able to take the opportunity to, to, to do a doctorate there with David Anderson, as it happens. 
I'm wondering how your feelings changed about climate from the moment you started your doctorate to, to today. I was speaking with another gentleman who's been involved in atmospheric science research since the early 80s, uh, Phil Duffy. I'm sure you've run into him before. And he was telling me that the level of concern amongst the scientific community in the early 80s was substantially less than it is today for a couple of reasons. One being that the science just wasn't developed enough to fully understand the implications of a warming planet. But two, that at that point in time, there wasn't yet the confidence that we have now that the science was correct. So there's also a lot of uncertainty about how a warming planet would unfold. And I'm wondering if your experience has been similar to his in that your concern or anxiety about this problem has grown um, over time. No, I think that's pretty much universal in that global temperature has evolved pretty much exactly as it was predicted to evolve back in the 1970s. In fact, it's quite uncanny. I don't, can't remember if I've shown you this slide in a lecture, but if you take predictions of what would happen if we just carried on burning CO2 and what would happen to global temperatures, and then you overlay global temperatures since, it's, it's uncanny uh, how good the fit is. Um, what has surprised us is both how fast the impacts of that warming have emerged and the range of impacts that have emerged, and also the reaction of the public. So what, what is an acceptable impact? And I do remember back in the 2000s, I, I didn't work, I worked on the physics of climate change. I was very much a, what we might call an IPCC working group one person, meaning somebody worked on the, the, the physico-chemical drivers of climate change, rather than a working group two person who worked on the impacts. And, and maybe I wasn't just keeping abreast of what was going on, but, but I remember, you know, we all thought that two degrees was kind of the goal. And in fact, up until Copenhagen, that was sort of essentially what people were imagining um, we were aiming for. And, and limiting warming to two degrees back then looked doable. It was clearly not the path we were on, but it looked like a, a, a relatively straightforward path to get onto. Then came, you know, a decade in which we both realized that actually two degrees was more than was acceptable for most of the population of the planet and at the same time, didn't do anything about it. So we've made one and a half degrees a whole lot harder to achieve because we've just put another 400 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere over the past decade. Um, and, you know, that's... So we both moved the goalposts forward and um, not slowed down yet. So was there, a, was there a kind of... I don't like to use the term aha moment um, when it comes to kind of climate realisations because that's very... So seldom the kind of noise we would make or the kind of <laughs> flippant emotional reaction we would have. But was there a kind of penny dropping moment for you in terms of the significance of the human impact, primarily, I suppose, when it became a climate crisis rather than a, rather than a natural uh, process, if that makes sense? Well, it was, it was I mean, we were, we were very interested in the 1990s in quantifying the human human impact, and started off recognizing that at the beginning of the 90s, we couldn't really do that systematically. It wasn't that we didn't believe there was one. It's just that we weren't convinced that we had the evidence to say how big it was. 
And it was really through the second half of the 90s, and I was working with a lot of folks at the Met Office on that, that we developed the science that allowed us to say how much of the warming we were seeing was due to human impact. And it turns out almost all of it was. And, you know, over successive cycles of the IPCC, we firmed up that estimate and and we're now in a position to say that of the 1.2 degrees warming that's occurred since the late 19th century, it's pretty much 100% anthropogenic. Um, you can't really explain any of it as, as natural. Um, there's some uncertainty in that, of course, plus or minus 0.2 degrees or so. But, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a human-induced signal. So um, was it an aha moment? In a sense, it was more sort of a gotcha moment in that we kind of figured we were looking for it. Um, we, we knew what we were looking for. And it was at what point could we pin down the evidence and say, yeah, that there's no other explanation. This is, you know, the smoking gun, if you like. Did you expect a noticeable increase in the level of global ambition around climate once it had been demonstrated that it was 100% caused by human activity? Well, I think we, we kind of recognized that this was necessary, um, but we also weren't so naive to think it would be sufficient. I mean, so we, you know, we realized until the evidence was clear that it was human influence that was changing the climate, that the warming wasn't natural, that there, was, there wasn't going to be action to, to, to change things. Um, you could have argued there should have been, I mean, in the sense that arguably back in the 70s, we knew there was a risk. I mean, as I say, Bill Nord has made a very accurate prediction. And that was based on physical understanding, on, on not, not evidence from observations. It was just based on their understanding of what the world would, how the world would behave. And um, on the precautionary note, you could, have, you could argue we should have taken action back then. But so our contribution in the 90s was more showing that you couldn't explain the data any other way rather than it being a particular surprise. And I remember plenty of colleagues actually rather teasing me about why are you obsessing over quantifying something that everybody knows is there anyway? Um, And there was an element of that. It was a slightly artificial question we were setting ourselves, but it needed to be done. And it's... uh, and it, you know, we realized that until you could show uh, an acceptably high level of confidence that the changes we were seeing were anthropogenic, it, it was unlikely that, that strong action would be taken to turn it around. And uh, so recognizing that, that those actions are going to come at a cost, to some people at least, and so they would need some convincing. What was frustrating was you know, when the evidence was pretty clear scientifically, we then had more than a decade of kind of rather pointless arguments of sand being chucked in the wheels and, you know, attention being drawn to things that were largely irrelevant um, rather than just focusing on the main question. Um, So we had a, you know, having established that most of the warming we'd seen since the 19th century was due to human influence, we then had a big, big, long argument about whether it was unprecedented over the past millennium. And it was like, so what? you know, what difference does it make to our understanding of the changes of climate since the 19th century, whether the medieval warm period was warmer or cooler than the 1990s. And yet somehow that became the big question. And and that was frustrating uh, because w- those, working, those of us working in the field knew perfectly well that that was an irrelevant question. And yet it was the one that everybody started obsessing over. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've we've managed to move on. 
Um, I think we're, we're no longer arguing about, I mean, I suppose in some corners of the internet, they continue to argue, but they always will. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in the scientific community and among governments and so on, there's no longer really any argument about the scale of human influence at the global level. Where, of course, the argument has shifted is now to what extent we can attribute specific impacts of climate change to this large-scale warming, which, of course, is very important, has become even more important since they agreed at the last COP that we would start to seriously address loss and damage from climate change, which means we need a mechanism for quantifying what is an impact, how much is climate change costing today. Right. So if any of our listeners have been following along, we touched on this in the last episode with Mitzi Janelle Tan when we spoke about the influence of climate change on typhoons, on tropical storms. And we spoke about how um, the latest science has been working on figuring out how climate change makes these storms more intense. And this is related directly to what, Miles, you're just saying, which is the current focus of science is figuring out, okay, these sort of events would have occurred even in a world without climate change, but climate change has made them more intense. So we need some sort of way to figure out how much of the storm's intensity or the heat wave's intensity was due to amplification by climate change versus natural phenomena which would have occurred anyway. And if we're talking about what are the damages from climate change, we need a way to split out the damages from an event into damages that would have occurred anyway and damages that occurred specifically because that event was amplified by climate change. So if you're interested to hear more about this, go check out last week's episode where we get into the details around tropical storms. Uh, Very shortly, Miles, we're going to jump into the piece you wrote for the conversation about the 1.5 degree target and some of the dangerous narratives that have sprung up around that target. But before we do I have one more question. I don't know why I have this memory in my head, but I have a memory of you wearing a t-shirt that read, uh, I'm a climate scientist. Ask me anything. I think you were on your way to some sort of public event. And I thought that was pretty wonderful. Um, And I'm curious, if you were wearing that t-shirt today and someone came up to you on the street and said, I have a question. Are you nervous? Are you scared uh, about climate change? What would your answer be? So yeah, we, it was Carsten Haustein's idea to make up those t-shirts. It was for the school strikes. And we, we made up these t-shirts to wear when we went down to see the uh, Fridays for Future uh, school strikers um, so as to identify ourselves and, and give the school strikers a chance to, to talk to a climate scientist. In fact, I was wearing that t-shirt on my way to the demonstration in Trafalgar Square and I, I was I, originally I was going to put it on when I got to the square, and I thought, well, no, okay, you know, lean in. Uh, so I actually wore it wore it on the way, and I was sitting on the on the tube actually on on my way. So it was obvious what I was doing. You know, the, the, the school strikes were in the news. It was obvious where I was going. There was a hashtag Fridays for Future on the T-shirt, and this sort of older middle aged guy sitting opposite me on the tube was sort of looking me up and down and said, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. And you know, I thought, oh, okay, here we go. You know, because he looked like I have to confess my immediate uh, cliche that I had in my head was, oh, here we go. We're going to, he's going to be asking me, is it all volcanoes and so on? But I was wrong. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. He, he immediately had some quite technical questions 
actually about solutions to climate change, which he was quite interested in. And we had a really good chat on, on the tube. So yeah, um, I, I've, that, those t-shirts, were they, it was a very good idea. It prompted all sorts of interesting questions from all sorts of people. And yeah, the question, you know, the, the, the question from the school strikers of, you know, am I, and I did get that question a lot, am I worried about climate change? And the answer is, I am worried, um, but but not for the same reasons that many people are worried, in the sense I don't feel this is a problem that is beyond solution, that we're doomed to a unlivable future. But what I what does keep me awake at night is the fact that the ways in which we're setting about addressing climate change aren't particularly effective and more worryingly, are sowing divisions between people, which I feel is actually a a big problem today. I mean, we live in a divided world and we seem to be almost in some quarters using climate change to increase divisions. It's becoming what I understand they call a wedge issue in politics. And it it shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. And that's what really worries me because, you know, the, the worst outcome for me is we both don't solve climate change and it becomes a source of global division. Because if people ask me, are you worried about the world warming to five degrees and, you know, five or six degrees? I answer, well, of course, that would be bad, but actually, I don't think we'll get to five or six degrees because I think the global instability that would result, geopolitical instability that would result from a warming past two to three degrees will, will, will stop climate change, but in a very, very bad way, if you see what I mean, uh, in a way that, that, that is, 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 not a, is, is not a good outcome for anybody. Um, so, so that's what I worry about. In case any of our listeners are wondering, Miles, what you mean when you say we'll end climate change in a very, very bad way for everyone, I'll paraphrase. The impacts of climate change beyond two to three degrees of warming will likely be so intense that they cause conflict in the most affected regions of the world over resource scarcity, whether that's availability of arable land. Uh, food shortages, shortages of water, or even just the availability of a livable climate, the types of activities that you can do outside, or even the amount of time that you can spend outside, because it's just so hot out. And these kind of conflicts are likely to cause migration, both within countries as well as between countries. And if we know one thing from the last 10 years of international geopolitics, It's that organized society does not deal well with large numbers of migrants. Over the past decade, we've seen on the order of a million or millions of migrants, largely as a result of some major armed conflicts. Trying to wrap my head around what a world with a hundred million or God forbid, a billion climate migrants just (laughs) really scares me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a genuine risk. I, I think it's and and also because we can see what's happening, it's not so much that the impacts themselves alone will um, destabilize societies, but the fact that countries that are not responsible for the problem will find themselves hit with you know heat waves that are killing people by the tens of thousands, 
um, and you know that they're, they're going to start taking taking measures into their own hands in, in in a in a way that could end really in a really ugly level of conflict, and that that's what worries me. Is is you know we need a we need a managed way out of this crisis because an unmanaged way would be appalling. Right. Climate change can't continue if there is no organized society around producing fossil fuel emissions. Uh, I think this is actually such an important point, Miles, that we're going to interview a couple of people later in this series who do research specifically on this point. So thank you so much for raising it. I'm curious, have you have you found that there are early signs of conflict that already that already disturb you? Well, the obvious one that everybody talks about is the North-South division, the fact that the North is overwhelmingly responsible for causing climate change and now we're imposing the solution on the South. Um, and we saw this in COP27 with, with activists saying, um, obviously, we shouldn't allow Africa to extract uh, African gas, for example. I mean, and a lot of African nations saying, who the heck are you? And 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 not much attempt at finding common ground um, there, and and that that you know that worries me. If 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 climate if climate comes to be seen as, and in many causes it is, there is um, it is seen as sort of the sort of new colonial effort that you know the, the North are unhappy about the way the South is behaving, so they want to use climate as a as a you know a, a reason for arguing that. Countries should should do what they're told and so on. So um, that's that, that, that's the sort of the big geopolitical division. Much closer to home, I'm very worried about the fact that already in Britain, net zero is being used as a a new rallying cry, or, or rather, um, countering net zero or sort of anti net zero is being used as a rally, rallying cry by the same populist right-wing commentators that were behind um, the last big division in British society, which was the whole Brexit argument. And they seem to be relishing an argument about net zero and, and climate change because they see it as hitting many of the same buttons, that it pitches you know, rich urbanites against poor people in um, badly insulated houses in small towns in Britain um, that's exactly the fight they they felt they won the last time, and they want to pick another one. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and that's that's what frustrates me is that you know, um, and and what also frustrates me on the other side um, is that many environmental activists seem to almost relish this fight as well. So you know, they they. Um, they they live a life which they feel is climate friendly and want everybody else to do the same, and are well up for a big argument um, about how other people should live. And again, I don't think that's a very constructive way of of approaching the problem. And and yet, you know, in in the most recent IPCC report, uh, it was um, strongly welcomed that there was a lot of emphasis on behavior change in the IPCC Working Group 3 report on mitigation. Lots of people welcomed that. Um, I think the, the, what worries me here is um, behavior change is great if it's, volu- if it's voluntary. If people decide to change their behavior, um, it's, it's wonderful, and it's by far the cheapest way to, to address climate change. But if behavior change is coerced, it's really scary. 
um, and it comes with a and it, and it really um, you know that that comes with a lot of loaded implications. Going back to what you first said when I asked this question, you said what you worry about is not what most people worry about, and I think that's really true. In my experience, most people worry about sort of passing some sort of cliff edge in the climate system that leads to rapid runaway warming that, you know, sterilizes the surface of the planet and everybody dies, like a very much like a Hollywood doomsday sort of movie. And you wrote a really excellent piece about why this narrative, when applied to the 1.5 degree target, is not correct and potentially dangerous. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that question. What happens if we actually do pass the 1.5 degree target? And like, what does that, what does that mean for everybody? Well, as we emphasized in the report, every tenth of a degree matters. Uh, every tenth of a degree of warming increases the risks of adverse impacts and increases the risks both of, of local losses and the risk of global instability. So it's it's really important to stop the warming as soon as possible. But in, in an analogy I used with the school strikers, it's it's like stopping smoking. Every cigarette you have increases your chances of getting lung cancer. It's a really good idea to stop. But if you don't stop today, it's still a very good idea to stop tomorrow. And, and I think one of the things that worries me about the uh, narrative around 1.5 degrees is that at the time it was talked up as 1.5 degrees or were completely doomed. And the risk now, as it becomes more and more clear that we are likely to cross 1.5 degrees, if only by you know, a tenth of a degree or two, people may feel, oh, well, we've missed it, so therefore there's no point in even trying. And and that's a very dangerous, uh, you know, it, it's like somebody who's, you know, they resolved to so- stop smoking, they, they failed to do it, so they think, oh, well, I'll just carry on smoking for life then because I didn't manage to stop, you know, I broke my New Year's resolution, so whatever. Um, and and it's, it's actually a very similar analogy and uh, one that works for kids too because they've all heard the message about smoking. If I can probe a little bit deeper, what is it about your understanding of the science that leads you to not have this fear of runaway warming if we pass 1.5 degrees? Now, if I'm taking the role of, let's say, a youth activist who hasn't read the report, I've probably heard things in the media like, the permafrost is thawing and releasing enormous amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, Ocean circulation is slowing and could shut down. There's all these feedback loops which are being activated and could lead to this doomsday scenario. Um, What does the science tell us about the chances of of this type of scenario occurring? Well, the best models we have available at the moment, the most detailed models, the ones which sort of represent the largest number of these processes, don't show that kind of runaway behavior. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I can't promise it won't happen. But I can say that that's not where our understanding of the global climate system is right now for these low levels of warming. When we go up to sort of four or five degrees, anything could happen. I mean, but but at the sort of one and a half to two degree level of warming, uh, the models don't predict global 
tipping point behavior. So they, they predict a pretty steady increase in temperatures as carbon dioxide continues to accumulate in the atmosphere. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that it's it's all hunky-dory everywhere. Um, certain critical um, endangered parts of our global climate system, like warm water corals, for example, are likely to be lost by the time we get to two degrees. And that is a tipping point that it will be very difficult to go back from. So we will lose the, the planet. Now, what the implications are, they're terrible implications for the communities that depend on warm water corals. They're terrible implications for all of us who care about these things. But that's not a, a global tipping point in the sense that it's not something that it's not a it's not a development that will be felt all over the world. Another tipping point that people do worry about, which would be felt all over the world, it would be, for example, the collapse of the West Antarctic Ice Shelf and a, a sudden acceleration in ice, lo- in, in ice loss from the, uh, the world ice caps. There is some evidence that ice loss is accelerating, um, and that, that's clearly a, a concern and one of the sort of probably the, the most uh, worrying of the global nonlinearities that we're keeping an eye on at the moment. Uh, but fortunately, ice sheets evolve relatively slowly, so it's not something that you know we cross 1.5 degrees and suddenly, boom, the ice sheets are gone. I mean, it would take uh, many, many decades to centuries um, for those ice sheets to to collapse. But there is, of course, the danger that once they get small enough, then you can't build them back again. Um, so that that's obviously you know, a concern, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Just one last question, and then we'll move on from the, the science deep dive. What I often hear from people being introduced to climate change is skepticism that large computer models can effectively project climate over the long term. And when we're talking about questions like, how do we know that humans are causing climate change? Or uh, what has Earth's climate looked like in the past? These sorts of questions can be answered using very few or essentially no uh, computerized models at all. There's many other forms of physical evidence that can answer um, questions like that. But when it comes to the future of our climate, we do need to use some sort of model, whether it's a simple physics model that you could solve on the back of a napkin, as essentially the Charney report did in the 1970s, or the modern massive models, which are hundreds of millions of lines of code and they run on supercomputing centers. Could you talk a little bit about how we know, how we have, why we have confidence in our models and also the other sort of lines of evidence that we can use to inform um, our picture of what the future looks like? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, computer models don't have to be particularly complicated to be useful. Um, and in fact, some of our most useful models are very simple indeed. And, and we can still understand the, 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 the big picture of you know, what, what, how emissions drive uh, temperatures and so on. But uh, in, in we've also got lots of other lines of evidence. The fact that the warming at a global level has been so predictable so far you know, decade to decade, we've seen warming pretty much exactly as predicted. So uh, it gives some reassurance that we, we do understand what's going on. And, and, you know, of course, the past is not an infallible guide to the future, but it, 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 it helps. And of course, we can look back at the deep 
record where we don't have instrumental observations, but we can reconstruct past temperatures from pollen, from ice core records, and so on. And we can calibrate our models against that deep historical record, and then, again, use that to assess what's uh, likely to happen in the future. It is important to you know, be, we have to be careful with that kind of evidence because, of course, we've never done this particular experiment before. And as far as we can tell, the planet hasn't done it either. This sort of sudden release of lots of fossil carbon into the atmosphere is which fossil carbon, which was which was laid down over many, many millions of years being released into the atmosphere in a couple of centuries. That's new. And we don't think that's happened before. So um, it's it. You know, we we can't promise um, this is why I said, you know, we can't guarantee about what's going to happen in the future. We can only say what is most likely based on our understanding of the physics at the moment. It's been said, it's been said before, Miles, that um, the climate problem uh, needs a better PR department. You know, it's been said that um, if, if climate had the same PR team that was behind COVID, then urgent action would have been taken. One of the, I would say, one of the biggest and most successful pieces of uh, public relations work, I would say, in terms of the climate, was was the idea of net zero. That there's a it was something that people could understand um, and relate to in terms of their own lives, um, and gave them something to aim towards. Uh, and obviously, you and your this was an idea that was very much generated by you and your colleagues. Um, and I'm I'm fascinated to know a little bit about um, how your you've mentioned already that in not in a very recent history in the UK particularly the idea of net zero has become politicized and there's a you feel there's a risk a concerning risk that it might feed division rather than resolve it um, how do you feel we are now in terms of I mean this net zero has, has kind of landed and become such a part of our uh, lexicon and understanding when it comes to what we need to do as individuals, as companies, at governmental level, etc. How do you feel that idea has kind of settled into our wider society and our wider systems? And um, is there anything that can, is, remains a concern for you? Sure. Well, net zero came about, I mean, in science, you know, sometimes you make progress by answering an established question, and sometimes you make progress by actually just asking a different question and recognizing that the established question wasn't really getting you anywhere. Um, and it, net zero really came about from the fact that we were trying to work out what concentration we should be aiming for in the atmosphere. And that turned out to be a very, very diff difficult question to answer because it was very difficult to predict what temperature we would end up at if we stabilized concentrations at 450 parts per million or 550 parts per million or 350 parts per million. And so that argument was really going nowhere. And around the sort of middle of the 2000s, uh, Dave Frame and I realized that actually there was a, a much simpler question, which was what temperature would we end up at if we just stopped emitting? And because but through an interesting and largely coincidental cancellation of behavior between the carbon cycle and the deep ocean temperature adjustment, if you just stop dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the world stops warming. It doesn't cool off again. It just, the, the warming largely stops. So that was the origin of the need for zero emissions. We didn't bother to call it net zero at the time. I mean, if you're a physicist, what's the point of saying net zero? It's the same as zero. <laughs> 
I remember net zero was very much emphasized as a phrase in the IPCC uh, fifth assessment report. Certain countries were very, very keen that whenever we said zero, we said net zero. And I think because they wanted to emphasize that it didn't necessarily mean that we were going to stop using fossil fuels entirely, but they wanted to emphasize the principle that any carbon dioxide that we generated from continued use of fossil fuels would be compensated for by carbon dioxide being actively taken out of the atmosphere. And that was scientifically correct. So we were happy to go along with that. And if it was felt that that was, you know, if the, the phrase net zero conveyed that, then um, that that's, uh, that's how it all uh, came about. And it was, in fact, very impressive to me how fast from a new piece of science in 2009, we got to the Paris Agreement acknowledging the reality of net zero in 2016, uh, 2015. So that's sort of six years uh, is, is phenomenally quick for an international uh, policy process accepting a relatively inconvenient piece of science. Because up until 2009, it was possible for everybody to say, well, we were going to reduce, you know, rich countries were going to reduce their emissions, poor countries would increase their emissions, we'd all meet in the middle and live happily ever after. The point about net zero was that, you know, actually the only sustainable long-term rate of production of carbon dioxide was zero. So that it was kind of pointless arguing over who would get to use the last 20% because there wasn't one. And that simplicity, I think, was a big part of why it was taken up so quickly. It didn't take a lot of explaining. It's just if you, if you want to stop global warming, you've got to stop dumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, since it's been adopted by, it's not all good news, because since it's been adopted by lots of countries and, and lots of companies as a goal, um, it seems to have got a whole lot more complicated again. I, I, I often feel it's a little bit like there's a, a stampede of consultants has sort of moved in and, <laughs> and somehow um, dispersed the idea. Um, so we now have a lot of confusion and, and understandable irritation among activists at net zero being used as a bit of an excuse for not doing anything. Um, in particular, um, we intended, uh, when we were originally doing the modeling behind net zero, we were running models in which, in effect, there was a, a fossil fuel source of carbon dioxide, a minor land use um, source of carbon dioxide, which you switched off and then allowed the climate system to do its thing. Um, and then you, we showed that you then didn't get any further warming. For many companies, um, net zero has come to mean continuing to use fossil fuels and planting trees or restoring ecosystems or something to uh, notionally compensate for the carbon dioxide you produce. Well, that doesn't actually make any sense in the context of the original science because there's only one biosphere. And if you claim that you're using the biosphere to compensate for your ongoing fossil fuel emissions, it's not there to do what it needs to do um, to stop global temperatures rising. So it's, you know, activists are right to find that annoying. It's not what we originally meant. Um, what we meant was basically if, if there was any further CO2 production from fossil fuel use, it would have to be balanced by active removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and committing that carbon dioxide to permanent storage 
putting it back underground, which is why these days I'm increasingly talking about geological net zero, the need to get to a point where if you're taking stuff out of the geosphere, you've got to be putting it back. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Miles, about the carbon take-back obligation, because I know this is a topic you've been working on a lot recently and are very excited about. But before we get there, I want to back up a couple of minutes and expand your excellent but concise net zero explanation, because I imagine there are some people listening to this show who don't have a physics background, who want to understand that critical point of why do we have to get emissions to net zero to stop warming? So I'm going to try and do this as quickly and concisely as possible. If I make any mistakes, please correct me. And then we'll get into the carbon take back obligation. So the first concept that you need to know if you're not from a physics background is that when you increase the amount of energy going into an object, its temperature increases. As temperature increases, the object gets better and better at radiating energy outwards as heat or light until it reaches a point where energy in and energy out are equal, temperature no longer increases, and the object is in what we call equilibrium. A good example of this is a stove element. You turn on the stove and it starts putting energy into the element. That element slowly starts to heat up. And as it does that, it glows first a dark red and then a brighter red and then maybe an orange, which is a direct visual representation of the element radiating energy outwards to balance the amount of energy going in. Eventually, the element reaches a constant temperature where it can radiate energy out at the same speed as the stove is putting energy in. We would say that the element is at equilibrium. Why is this relevant? It's relevant because our planet is an object in the universe, and so the same rules apply to the planet. Let's imagine that we live on a planet with only land, no oceans. You put some greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which trap extra energy from the sun. This is the equivalent of turning on a stove element. The surface of the planet would very quickly heat up until it reaches a new temperature where it is able to radiate out the same amount of energy as the greenhouse gases are trapping, a new equilibrium temperature. This would happen very quickly on the order of decades. Now let's move to a slightly more realistic planet, one covered with large oceans like Earth. When you put the same amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, exactly the same thing happens. The surface temperature of the planet increases until it reaches a temperature where it can radiate energy outwards at the same rate as energy is going in. Except, this will happen much more slowly on the planet with oceans, on the order of thousands of years instead of just decades. Why? Because water has a very high specific heat capacity which is just a fancy way of saying that it takes a lot of energy to increase water's temperature. If you've ever lived near a lake or large body of water, you'll note that water stays cold well through early into mid-summer and then stays warm well into mid-autumn, maybe even early winter, 
And this is because water is slow to heat up and slow to cool down because of its high specific heat capacity. So what does this mean? We're currently living on a planet where we have not yet experienced all of the warming that will occur given just the greenhouse gases already in our atmosphere. In other words, if current greenhouse gas concentrations stayed constant, the planet would continue to warm for thousands of years as the ocean slowly increases its temperature on the way to energy equilibrium. Think of current greenhouse gases as turning the stove element on. We're still waiting for the element to fully heat up. Think about adding extra greenhouse gases to the atmosphere as turning the stove up even higher. What does this have to do with net zero? If we want to stop temperatures from rising, clearly we need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, because as we just talked about, just by keeping them constant, we'll get thousands of years of more warming as our ocean stove elements heat up very slowly. It turns out there are three natural processes that remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We won't get into details right now because we're time constrained. Just know that there are three and that they are slow. Right now, these processes are 100% full, taking care of our fossil fuel emissions. Our fossil fuel emissions in a given year are orders of magnitude larger than what the natural processes can remove. If we reduced our fossil fuel emissions down so they're less than what the natural processes can remove in a given year, then atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations would start to fall, reducing the amount of extra energy captured by the sun and counterbalancing the slow warming of our oceans. How much do they have to fall each year in order to totally counterbalance the warming ocean? It turns out our best estimate from Miles and Dave Frame and others is about 100% of the natural removal processes are needed to remove enough energy each year to counterbalance the temperature increase of the ocean as it reaches energy equilibrium. Therefore, we need to hit net zero fossil fuel emissions so that 100% of the natural removal processes are free. Now, I hope this made sense. If it doesn't, I'm going to link some written work, some written references in the show notes, which will do a much better job. But Miles hasn't corrected me yet, so I think we're off to a good start. With that said, Miles, could you talk a little bit about the carbon take-back obligation and why it's important and how it relates to this idea of us needing to get to net zero emissions to stop warming? Well, I think there's a fundamental principle that we need to accept if we're going to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming, which is that any carbon dioxide that continues to be, to be produced from use of fossil fuels wherever it is in the world will have to be compensated for by carbon dioxide being actively restored to the geosphere, put back underground or, or turned back into rock in some way. And this hasn't really sunk in to a lot of people, but it's physically essential because if you burn a fossil fuel, you're releasing carbon dioxide that will continue to affect the climate for tens of thousands of years. And so the only way to compensate for doing that is to remove some carbon dioxide, either the same carbon dioxide, so capture it where you produce it, or recapture it from the atmosphere 
and commit it to permanent storage, meaning out of the atmosphere for tens of thousands of years. And so um, the idea of carbon take back is just how can you frame climate policies to make that happen? And the first thing you've got to do, a a bit like um, showing that warming was human induced in the first place, the first thing we've got to do is convince everybody that that's the destination we need to get to. So we need to get to geological net zero. And we think that a lot of people are kind of on board with that in theory, but not on board with that in practice. I mean, you you talk to people, yes, yeah, they all acknowledge, yes, we can't turn rocks into trees forever, but but let's keep doing it for now. And okay, we can't turn rocks into trees for very long. So we need to make a plan for where we're going to stop doing that. And if there's any continued use of fossil continued production of fossil uh, CO2, that will be compensated for by permanent storage. So on the one hand, we've got companies who find that uncomfortable because getting rid of CO2 permanently is a lot more expensive than planting trees. So they'd rather not talk about it. And on the other hand, we have activists who find this uncomfortable because when I talk about permanent geological storage as fully compensating for continued production of CO2 from burning fossil fuels, they get worried because they say, you mean there is a future in which we can use fossil fuels without those fossil fuels causing climate change? And I say, well, as a physicist, the answer is yes. I mean, there's no need for us to put the CO2 that's generated by burning fossil fuels into the atmosphere. And if we put it somewhere else, and if we did that safely and we did that securely, then it would not cause climate change. Whether we still want to do that is a matter for future generations to decide. It might be a sensible way of generating some energy in the future. It might be a really dumb way of generating energy in the future. I don't know. But what I do know is that if we're going to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming, we're going to have to get rid of the carbon dioxide they generate permanently and put it back underground. And that's the sort of fundamental thing that I want people to get their minds around and accept. And once you've accepted that, then I think we can go on to talk about what are the right policies to ensure that happens. And and carbon take back is one idea where you essentially introduce the principle that anyone selling fossil fuels takes on an obligation to get rid of the waste they generate. Because at the moment, all of our climate policies are focused on the person who burns the fossil fuels, who generally has very little agency in this problem. I mean, your, 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 common, your, your common or garden consumer um, can't really do anything about their CO2. Yes, they can drive their car a bit less and so on, but they certainly can't get rid of their CO2 that they're still generating from their home heating system or something. Um, and whereas the company that's selling them the fuel at, at has plenty of agency in this. And if I could just end with an observation that I find striking to reassure people this is a fixable problem. So for the difference in cost, between what it costs to provide us with natural gas in the UK at the moment and what we're paying for that gas. So not all of that is pure profit to some evil private company. A lot of that's going to the government in taxes and so on. But that difference between what natural gas costs to supply and what we're paying for natural gas right now in the UK would pay for recapturing the carbon dioxide that gas generates back out of the atmosphere and pumping it back under the North Sea twice over. So this is a solvable problem, but it's not a problem that's going to get solved solely by changing people's behavior and encouraging us all to 
wear woolly jumpers and turn down the heating. We've got to get the big companies, and there's not very many of them, that are taking fossil fuels out of the ground to take responsibility for putting the carbon dioxide they generate back into the ground. Miles, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. You're welcome. For our listeners, stick around. Patrick and I are going to do a quick outro where we discuss some of the mental health topics that we didn't get the chance to go deep into today because I was busy distracting us with scientific topics. Episode 3, Dr. Miles Allen. The reason that I wanted to get Miles on this show, (laughs) other than the fact that he's one of the world's most accomplished climate scientists, so a good person to speak to, (laughs) is I think there's a concept that's really important when it comes to climate anxiety, but also mental health in general, which is this idea of educating yourself about the Mm. thing that you fear. And I'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts today, Patrick, because education has been like a superpower for me with my own struggles. Um, I've just found it very effective to go out when you're afraid of something and dispel the uncertainty around the topic. You know, when you're afraid of something and you don't know much about it, your brain can fill it with your own personal hell. It fills in all the blank spots with the things that are tailored perfectly to your <laughs> your most terrifying inner demons. And it seems to me that once you go out and learn the truth about a subject or whatever it is that scares you, uh, it just becomes a lot easier to bear because the truth is always going to be less scary than your own personal imagined <laughs> nightmare. So Patrick, as our resident clinical psychologist, what's the role of education in managing anxiety? Is there a way to do it correctly? Are there things you need to look out for? Tell us how it's done. Yeah, yeah. It's such a, unfortunately, of course, there isn't just one answer to that. For you, you know, for you, it's, uh, that's great that you've worked, you've kind of worked that out that you're, that's your superpower, right? That educating yourself has been a really effective tool, right? Making the uncertain more certain. And going right back to developmental psychology you know there's this kind of it's funny when you were talking about filling the gaps with our own personal hell it made me think about um the, what we call magical thinking you know that mid-childhood age where we have like bits of information but and we try to kind of we've we've heard about something we've heard that it's serious and we try you know say for example uh death or uh serious illness or and then uh, climate change, actually, but we don't have all of the information. And so our older child in us is kind of piecing the bits together and thinking very rationally, but the still quite juvenile uh, infant in our brain is filling those gaps with the most fantastical, wonderful ideas. And oftentimes that can lead us to sort of quite terrifying conclusions about the world. And of course, as parents and educators, our job is to kind of help bridge those gaps for young people, right? So from a really early age, we're sort of taught that actually knowledge is empowering. And when we feel empowered, we feel less fearful, you know, when we make the unknown known. So there's absolutely a role for this, absolutely a role for education. And 
we we have our own forms of magical thinking when we're, when we're when we're grown ups, especially if we're anxious about something or if we're, as you say, if we're kind of experiencing strong emotions about something. When it comes to so, let's take fear for example for an example, and if and this is this is where we start getting into the like the sort of minutiae and the nuance of this question. If knowledge increases your sense of control, then it is widely thought of as being uh, fear reducing, right? If knowledge decreases your sense of self-control, it's going to be fear amplifying. And so a living example of this was, so take, so uh, 20, 2020, the heady days of mid 2020, kind of COVID, you know, rapidly spreading around the world. The WHO guidance at that time was for it was basically from a mental health perspective very clearly saying keep the information that you're seeking and consuming to that which is immediately relevant to your day-to-day life and your local community the reason they said that was covid was one of those examples of high magnitude low personal control situations right um and so actually there was a point people reached a point quite quickly where information was becoming unhelpful right because it was panic inducing there was it was adding to the uncertainty rather than rather than um rather than uh, decreasing it and so there are definitely times where knowledge can become unhelpful and that 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 translates to the climate space as well you know we we published a paper in last year 2022 looking at people in the UK and like what sort of predictors there were of climate anxiety and found that one of the strongest predictors was climate information seeking behavior. So this is, this is like the classic (laughs) internet spiral that people with health anxiety go down. Like they, they see a spot on their hand and then they're self-diagnosing some horrible disease. Right. Digital rumination. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of doom scrolling or, you know, doom scrolling became quite the celebrity, right? During COVID, during COVID because we had all this time and all this uh, existential, but yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a point at which knowledge is, is undoubtedly helpful and undoubtedly reduces uncertainty. The caveat to that is there will become, there will become a point where actually we are, we, we do start to overconsume, you know, and then the question to ask is that, well, what does it feel like for me when I'm overconsuming information? Um, or the information is amplifying my sense of uncertainty or amplifying my sense of grief, amplifying my sense of panic uh, in, an, in an unhelpful way, right? By which I mean, not as part of trying to process the strong emotions, but just, you know, feel like we're just being beaten over the head by them. And also, is the, uh, is the information gathering leading, increasing my sense of agency, my sense of control, my sense of kind of what I can say do about this because it isn't all action oriented but how you know is it is it am i feeling empowered to respond right and this is one of the reasons i wanted to get miles on the show so badly one of the i think most common catastrophizations of climate science is this idea that if we pass the 1.5 or the 2 degree target there's this immediate runaway warming and there's nothing we can do about it so that's a great example of education being helpful insofar as the truth is that how bad things get are largely within our control collectively. And so learning that 
we don't need to worry about runaway warming immediately. What we need to worry about is our actions puts us, you know, back in the driver's seat. Yeah. And this came up with, uh, in, with when we spoke with Mitzi Janelle Tan the week before, who was saying when, when there was research evidence suggesting we weren't going to achieve 1.5 uh, above pre-industrial levels, that then sent, you know, had a really significant emotional impact on her um, because she felt this sense of cliff edge. Um, completely disempowered, completely took all of her power and agency taken away by that. But then it was, yeah, I said when she would then, then sort of re-educated herself around the fact that, well, then we'll aim for 1.51, 1.52, knowing that there are still things we can do, knowing that that, that those, those changes are still really significant. Um, yeah, it, it, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, but it, it's just a minefield, you know, educated climate education is a minefield for this reason, because it's like, you know, it's like whack-a-mole, you know, you kind of, you might sort of settle one emotion with one piece of information, but then it might trigger something else. And, um, <laughs> we have to, we have to allow that, I think, to, ha- to happen to some degree. What can someone do if they start to take education too far and they end up in that doom scrolling space where it's no longer making them feel better, it's making them feel worse? How do you manage that? Uh, j- really just sort of treat it super behaviorally, right? Think of it as a, almost as a sort of habit um, and apply kind of habit reversal training techniques super, super behaviorally, you know, when is it most likely to happen? Where is it most likely to happen? You know, what's the biggest predictor of behavior is opportunity, right? Of course. And so how can I, how can I reduce the opportunity that that's going to happen? What boundaries can I put in for myself? You know, there's certain apps I need to limit, do I need to, you know, even just experiment for a week with turning the radio off in the background or, you know, limiting the amount of uh, climate news you're reading or whatever it is. Um, and just seeing what, what correlation does that experiment have? What outcome does that have in terms of your, in terms of your well-being? Obviously, we're not saying disconnect from the world and, and stick your head in the sand. Um, but again, back to that WHO guidance, you know, we, you know, sometimes, sometimes we actually need to consume less. Uh, in order to allow ourselves to 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 go about our day to day lives in a way that you know in the way that means we can we can we can thrive and take joy from things got it that's helpful one one of the other things that always shocks me and I'm curious to get your perspective one of the other things that always shocks me with regards to climate and education is that most of the people who are really concerned about climate or even working on climate don't or haven't read the IPCC reports. And this just boggles my mind because they are probably the the most thoroughly reviewed scientific documents in human history. And they contain an amazing synthesis of all the work, all of the academic literature, all the evidence regarding climate change done by essentially all of the scientists in the world. If you're concerned about climate and you want to know more about it. I would have thought that that would be your first place to go and read. I I guess the only thing I can think of is maybe it's a protective thing. Um, Like we were talking about that reading the science makes you feel worse and makes you feel like you have less control if you're not a scientist. Uh, And so people avoid it. Yeah. I mean, they're also pretty dense and unapproachable unless you're used, unless you're kind of just uh, like me. Yeah. (laughs) I guess I'm making the mistake of thinking that 
everyone thinks the same way I do, which <laughs> thank God is not true. Uh, I guess the closest analogy I can think of is if you're diagnosed with some sort of nasty chronic health condition, my first instinct would be tell me everything you know about it so that I understand, you know, what to expect for myself. You know what? It's, it's really, yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, this reminds me of when I, when I worked in, uh, I worked as a psychologist in the children's hospital and we would be helping, uh, parents, uh, prepare for their child's surgery. Right. And, there would be a consenting process, obviously, with the with the lead surgeon who would sit them down and explain the procedure, explain the risks uh, involved, and would give them an opportunity to ask as many questions as they wanted. And you'd see in that context, parent A would go in there with a list of questions that that consenting could last two hours. They would want to know everything. And then parent B wouldn't, wouldn't even walk into the room. And that, and that com- completely, you know, in in my mind, completely kind of uh, just completely drove home this idea that actually we cope in different ways. We when there's something uncertain, when there's something formidable, and you know, and something frightening, our coping our coping styles can be so wildly different. Would you say and they're both valid coping styles? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was there was no there was no way I was going to try and get parent B to sit down in that room for two hours. It would have been terrifying for them, and I wouldn't have really served, served them. And when we, when, I, when I'd sit down as part of that pre op and chat with parent B, parent B would say, "I know that if I was in there, I'm I'm just I'm not going to sleep thinking about it, and I'm going to be on my phone room, and and, and it's just not it's, that's not going to be helpful for me." Whereas parent A will say, "Yeah, I I I got to be in there. That's that's how I'm that's how I'm going to process this. The more I understand, the more settled I feel." Um. And that, yeah, there's no right or wrong at all. Yeah. I think everyone already kind of knows that you're a pretty special guy, Patrick, and that it's a wonderful <laughs> thing that you're the co-host of this podcast. But if anyone had any lingering doubts, the people who work in children's hospitals are just another breed. <laughs> I don't know how you find the emotional resiliency to do that. <laughs> well, I don't do it anymore. Perhaps that's why. <laughs> no, I take it back. Yeah, yeah. How dare you give up on those children, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up before I end up saying something uh, defamatory about the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. That wraps episode three. Next week, we'll be interviewing Per Espen Stoknes, who is a member of the Norwegian parliament, an entrepreneur, an economist, a psychologist a TED speaker, and the author of the book What You Think About When You Try Not to Think About Global Warming. In the meantime, we're going to roll Orlando's excellent outro. As a reminder, totally enormous extinct dinosaurs. Orlando very kindly let us use some of the music that he's written as our intro and outro. Go check out his stuff. It's fantastic. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>